Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. All right. Good to see you all and those who will be online joining us. And uh, we go as far as Australia to Graham and, and Eileen and the guys. So big hi to you guys. Um, yeah, okay. So the kids are going out. So you can go. As already been said, the, uh, uh, Lucy and the guys are down in London. Charlie's done his best time on the marathon. Big congratulations for missing my cheerleader down the frontier tonight in, uh, in Georgia. But uh, honestly, you know, if you didn't have to run 26 miles, I'd do a marathon myself. Could quite quite fancy if it didn't involve running 26 miles. Um, bit of housekeeping, when we get to the end, don't do I then shall live, day. we'll do either at the cross or we'll do in Christ alone, depends where we finish. Okay, Okay. a couple of other things, just um, um, this, uh, this weekend is the, was, this week was the last week of employment for Amy and for Beth with us, for which we are sad and grateful, um, probably more sad, um, but big thanks to Amy and to Beth for, for their input and impartation, and uh, I'm sure we'll still be getting some volunteer stuff, but uh, this time we have to cut our cloth accordingly, and we are rebuilding ourselves and restructuring ourselves as we need to be for where we are heading wherever that may be and whatever that may entail for us. So, um, yeah, I know how to get into what I want to talk about tonight. Whether I know how to get out of it is another question. Uh, and maybe we'll get out of it next week, I don't know. We're given a little extra time. Uh, our guys have all been in um, a big team in uh, Dolby Forest this week with the, with the kids, with the youth. And, um, you know, so we've got various things, so, and some people like a little extra talk, so, so we're going there. So we'll, um, we'll, we'll see how we go. One, one of the things that has concerned me that I never saw quite so acutely as I have seen it in recent years, and, and particularly as my journey has brought me to this time, is something that looks awfully like the violence of God. And um, I find it concerning in the sense that I have to reconcile what Jesus says about how he himself and we should respond to those who we term to be sinners or enemies of the gospel or enemies of the cross. And how if we take things without a certain measurement, it seems that God has applied himself to that very same problem. There was a guy um, called Marcion, 
Osinope, who was born about, about 86 AD, so we're going back a while. Um, the thing about Marcion is that he was, he was born about 50 years after the death of Jesus, the resurrection. And um, he had his major influence, obviously, into the second century, into the 100s, which is, is less than 100 years after, after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And um, Marcion got himself into a whole lot of bother because he dared to ask the question, is the God of the Old Testament the God of Jesus? His reason for that was that in reading the accounts of what is recorded to be God's dealings with humanity and with Israel in the Old Testament, and then measuring that against the, the ministry and the words of Jesus, like, for example, that we are to love our enemies, we are to pray for those who are against us, that we are to forgive 70 times 7, he felt that, that the way God is written up in the Old Testament was a contradiction to that because it appeared that God did not forgive his enemies, that God did not pray for those who were despitefully using his people, but that God came down with very strong vengeance and, uh, and he had problems with how he saw that. Now, um, I think Marcion asked the right question. Personally, I think Marcion came up with some of the wrong answers. Um, but he was wrestling with the right question. And really, what he was trying to do was free the gospel that came through Jesus from the shackles of legalistic, institutionalized thinking, some of which, unfortunately, has been superimposed upon the writings and the expressions of what was recorded in the Old Testament. Um, and I have long been concerned about this because there seems to be a fascination in some quarters with the violence of God. Now, we, we don't put it as bluntly as that, but when people are thinking about God destroying his enemies, you know, or even in the context of how at one time I believed in an eternal conscious torment, which I'm honest enough to say I don't think that's the best expression or understanding of what the Scripture is saying anymore, was the idea that God would punish people, human beings, finite, infinitely for finite decisions. That you would have you know, 12, 15, 20, 40, 60, 70 years, and in that period, as, a, as, as a, what we know is a frail, fallible human being, you would have to decide what would happen to you forever and forever and forever. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I see problems with that now. That where I am not arrogant enough to say I know all the answers, I can say that I do know some of the problems and some of those questions should be asked. Otherwise, we have to say we finish up with a violent God whose inability to supersede his own wrath means that humanity who he created suffers for his own inability to supersede his own wrath. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I appreciate some of this is controversial, but it, it, it's, it's right to think about it. Now, I also know that last week we gave some people's tree a good shake. 
And I know that some of you didn't like it. And that was for a variety of reasons. Some of you, like me, have been raised most of your church life with a certain view of the cross and what we know as the atonement and the sacrifice of Jesus and, and a view of, of sin and when we became sinful, how we became sinful. That is also an interesting point uh, to be thought about because if we accept the idea that because Adam did what he did, you know, whether that's metaphorical or real, and that we are now all sinners, whether we like it or not, because of something that Adam in the Bible did, and not by any choice of our own, we are all sinners because of Adam's sin, but then the only way we can participate in Christ's righteousness is by a personal choice. So if we didn't have to choose what came on us because of Adam, but we do have to choose what comes upon us because of Christ, then what Adam did is stronger than what Christ has done. Do you get that? Is that, is that pretty good logic? So again, in there, it puts a question mark that for me does not diminish the gospel, but it glorifies the work of God in Christ to say something bigger, something better, something greater, something more expansive, something more in inviting, something more purposeful has happened in the wonder of the gospel than sometimes because we have been so focused on escaping the violence we have missed. So I know there are a variety of reasons for why some would feel uncomfortable uh, last week, some would not agree, and that's fine. Um, um, I, I understand that, okay? What I'm trying to say is I'm extremely compassionate towards that, okay? Just because we raised it doesn't mean that I'm saying this is right, that's wrong, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm right, you're wrong. I am compassionate towards that. We're simply trying to open up this conversation that says, how do we see God and how do we therefore, in view of that, see humanity and how do we see the cross and how do we see the resurrection? I believe the cross worked. I believe the resurrection was amazing. I believe there is life from the dead. We're really talking about the issues that might allow us to participate in the fullness of all of that. So let me read you two views that stir different emotions in me. One is by a guy called R.C. Sproul, who was a, is a, was a Presbyterian minister and um, was in, for those of you who understand it, what would be called the Reformed tradition of theology. Basically, he's repeating what he believes Martin Luther and John Calvin taught at the Reformation. But listen to this, see what you think of this. Christ's supreme achievement on the cross is that he placated the wrath of God, which would burn against us were we not covered by the sacrifice of Christ. So if somebody argues against the placation or the idea of Christ satisfying the wrath of God, be alert because the gospel is at stake. That is what salvation is all about. That's what R.C. Sproul said. So I propose to you that totally, completely, and absolutely in one sentence debunks any notion of real forgiveness on the part of God. Because if God's full of wrath, and then the debt that gets rid of that wrath is paid, then God cannot say, I forgive you, because now there's nothing 
to forgive. You can only be in a state of forgiveness when there exists a condition that requires the expression of that forgiveness. So for me, there is weakness in what he's said. Now, I understand it's not said maliciously, it's not said without passion, and it's not said without a genuine love for God. But for me, it misrepresents the whole idea of God is this wrathful being who we have ticked off so bad that the only way to deal with that is going to have to kill somebody, and the one who gets it is his son. Now, now, in some ways, I wish I could still preach that gospel because it's a lot easier for me and I could get a lot of more of you involved. But once we have to think beyond those criteria to say this is actually bigger and we're talking about something wonderful called forgiveness that does not happen because of anything that we do but in spite of everything that we have done. So I believe there is great forgiveness that flows from God. It's, it, it permeates the atmosphere all the time and does not require a sacrifice to appease God so he can forgive. Now, I think there's great value and validity to the sacrifice of Jesus. We have not got time to talk about it, but back in the days when all this was happening, life was cheap, but blood was the most valuable commodity you could have. It was, it was more valuable than gold or silver because blood was the highest form by which you made promise and covenant. I believe at the cross we were experiencing and seeing God using the most expensive uh, commodity in the universe for the role of covenant to say, I promise you that my forgiveness is bigger than anything you will ever do. I promise you that my heart of love will never change towards you. I promise you that I'm not the one who has to change how I see you. Now, you see, the way I used to preach the gospel was, was that I had to get God to change how he saw me because I was an unworthy sinner and I needed God to see me not as an unworthy sinner so that he could, by some way, tolerate me into his presence. But then I would still have to be careful to live a holy life, but he would let me in. But you see, the way I now see the gospel, it's got nothing to do with changing how God sees me. It's all to do with changing how I see God. And when I see God in the light of this newness and see the fullness of his revelation, that's when grace produces a changing me and a transformation. So I think that, particular statement debunks any notion of real forgiveness. Now let me read you another statement by a man who I do not hold in very high regard, but he's loved by God and he's loved, he irritates me a little bit, but if we were together we'd probably have a good conversation. Uh, and that's Richard Dawkins. How many of you know who Richard Dawkins is who wrote The God Delusion? Um, part of my problem is, to use a phrase, I think he can ride a coach and horses through his his thesis of the God delusion. It's very poor, it's very weak, but if you're looking for something to affirm you not wanting to believe in God, the God delusion will do that. If you're a thinker, it won't. But I have to say I have great sympathy towards what Richard Dawkins wrote here. Listen to what Dawkins wrote. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Now, I don't believe it's fiction, but... Jealous and proud of it. A petty control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, 
infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously benevolent, benevolent bullying. Now I have to say, much as I disagree with Richard Dawkins, I can see not only where he's got that point from, but I can see that much of the church has reinforced that thinking within Richard Dawkins that has brought him to that point. And there is a way to look through the Old Testament stories which we overlook because we don't like the dirtiness of the story because if now we were to say, okay, so God did to villages in Canaan according to how it's recorded in some of the Bible... What happened to villagers in the village of Srebrenica during the Yugoslav split, right, of the Serbians and the Croats, where, where whole villages were wiped out and bodies thrown into graves, women, children, men, and women, women, men and children, and all their goods disarrayed and their animals slaughtered. I have to say, if we're honest and we call ourselves truly followers of the divine, followers of God and lovers of Jesus, we cannot just overlook those things because now we would call those war crimes. The trouble is that we Christians can sometimes sound like a, a state-appointed defense lawyer or barrister attempting to excuse what to all intents and purposes looks like a blatant violation of human dignity and right. And I've done it, gone to great lengths. Well, God knows what he's doing. I don't think that's a good enough answer. Oh, well, you know, these, these, I heard one guy say about the Canaanite villages, which is part of the story. Well, this, it was only a village. You know, don't, don't get so on your eye also about it. It was only a village. That's like saying, listen, you know, the atrocities... Sadly, in Sri Lanka this last week, it was only 200 and odd people. We thought it was 300 and odd, but hey, it's only 200 and odd. What's all the fuss about? You would say that's disgraceful, that's horrible. Or the one person who was shot yesterday in the synagogue in America. Precious lives, precious people. I cannot bring myself to believe that the one who says he is love would indiscriminately give instruction to commit genocide in a village. Now you have to say that poses all kinds of problems for me because how I read the scriptures now, you know, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to do what we're all supposed to do and you pass it through the lens of the Christ. You pass it through the lens of the God who is love. You realise humanity is still involved. But in there, if we cannot do that, and we accept that that's what God instructed people to do, then Dawkins is right. We have a genocidal maniac on our hands. That's not the God of Jesus. It's not the God I believe in. Nor do I believe it's the God of the Old Testament, although I sometimes believe it's the God of Israel. Again, we're having a long time to, to have a conversation about this. It's deep stuff, isn't it? So what if for a minute you were to put God in the dock? See, in some ways I was so afraid of, of the God that I thought that I loved that I couldn't put him in the dock and question him 
Because to do that would be blasphemous, because it would be blaspheming the choices that he had made, which pro produced some of these paradoxes that were unanswerable outside of that. But actually, I think God became flesh in Jesus so we could see him, talk to him, ask him, work with him, look at him, see a revelation of who the divine really is like. And I don't think God has any problem at all if for a minute we just put him in the dock. So if you were now to put God in the dock, would love be the word you would best use to describe the being that you have now put in the dock? Would your sense of his majesty, his sovereignty, his greatness overrule the fact that you would have to ask the question, when I see this person, do I see love in its very being, in its very essence? Now there are those who would say, Anth, you're crazy to talk about this stuff. You should keep it to yourself. I would say, yes, I could. And you would have a, a leader who has no integrity, no validity, who in his heart has lots of questions but tries to pull the wool over your eyes just to make you feel good so you'll come and give you money and fill the pews. And I can't do that. I want honesty. I want reality. Jesus said, follow me. And for those who followed him, it meant all kinds of sacrifices and in many ways lots of consequences. I found it interesting that there's nowhere that Jesus ever said, worship me. Now, I think we should worship him. I think he deserves to be worshipped. But he never asked for that. He said, I'd rather that you follow me. Because he said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I am the life. So journeying on a way, accepting truth, means that we come into life. That's the way into the fullness of life. Now there is good news in this. But we're not there yet. See, what I realise is that some people need the violence to make all this valid. You know, it's like, if I don't have a God who beats up on my enemies, if I don't have a God who, 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 guards me in the schoolyard against the bullies and, and, and smacks people in the mouth, then what kind of God is that? There are many people, believe it or not, and some of us probably, we mask it, but we, we prefer a violent God. We like the idea of, yeah, I can get my head around God absolutely violently killing his son, sacrificing his son so that I could go free. It's a wonderful story, that, but, but some, some of us can't handle it without the violence. Some need the wind to make it wanted. Okay, so how does he win this? Because we only understand win in one way, and that's by somebody else losing, somebody being put down. So, so we have to have certain things about devils and demons and all this that he has to win. Otherwise, why should I follow him? Some need the threat to make it worth it. See, without the threat of eternal hell... Lots of people wouldn't be in anything that promotes an eternal heaven. Because it would be the threat of going to hell that transfers our thinking. So, so we are in because of the threat. We, we, we are participate because of the threat of what we are avoiding. Because if we're not in, we can't avoid that. See where I'm coming from with this. 
So then I would ask the question on the back of that, do we know what love really is? As Chris said, we, we can come out of an understanding of the cross that if God had to kill Jesus in order to show us how much he loved us, then in our mind we have imprinted deep in our psyche that violence is the highest expression of love. So therefore when we run that back, destroying enemies, killing people who don't worship the same God, you know, if you like, bombing other faiths, all become valid because violence is the highest expression of love. And you know that's wrong. And I know that that's wrong. So do we know what love really is? Do we know how to respond? Does love draw the best from us? I would say it doesn't. As a leader, as a pastor, I know that the message of love doesn't draw the best from the people. What draws the best is, if you don't do this, you won't get that. If you're not this, you won't be this. If God sees that, he's going to do that. So it becomes, God is angry, he must be appeased. You're rewarded for doing good, you're punished for doing bad. And, uh, you know, if you don't pay your tithes, you won't financially prosper. If you don't attend church, you will spiritually die and become a backslider. So we actually, we actually, and I'm honest, I'm the same, we sit much more comfortable with those kind of rules and those kind of laws that says, if you don't, you can't. If it isn't, you're not. And so something inside us is, is drawn to that violence that comes through that because it makes more sense to us because somehow... We don't really know how to grasp this all-loving being whose very essence is love, who does not have any anger within him that needs to be appeased. And you see, but the Bible mentions the wrath of God. We haven't got even any time to talk about where you might begin to place what that means. But I believe there's another way of seeing it that doesn't put it in the context of here's God with his wrath, here's you that's going to get it, but thank God Jesus took the wrath of God. Now... That's been most of our common belief, but the problem is that has meant that we do not truly know what love really is. We only see it in the context of violent sacrifice on our behalf. Now, if you really believe that, all of you would serve me to the level of violent sacrifice. You would serve this church to the level of violent sacrifice. And I'm not asking for that, not looking for that, don't want that. But can you see how there comes a distortion? So all of this is trying to bring us back. What really is love and how do we respond to that love? Does love draw the best from us? It should, but love is probably not what draws the best from us. However, love is certainly what produces the best in us. When we get a hold of that love, it begins to produce the best. So I want us to catch the fullness of that love. Okay, we're not going to get through everything tonight, but let me just say another couple of things. First of all, on my behalf, I'm trying to get you to see something that I can't get you to see. Matthew 16, they asked Jesus, Jesus asked them, he said, who, who are people, who are the crowd, who, who are this lot saying that I am? 
And they came up with a bunch of various ideas about who and what and, you know, this prophet, that prophet. So, okay, but here, here's the billion-dollar question. Who am I to you? Who do you say I am? Who, who am I to you? And uh, dear old Peter, you know, this famous character, wonderful follower of Jesus, um, a bit volatile at times. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, we'll talk a bit more about that Christ bit on Wednesday. Love you to be here because this will explain even more of what we're talking about, of the wonderful, the wonderful revelation, which is the Christ, which is beyond Jesus. Christ is not Jesus' second name, okay? And I want to talk to you Wednesday about how the Christ, Jesus has not always been, but the Christ always has. Talk to you a little bit about that on Wednesday. He said, you're the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, you're blessed, Simon, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, I'm trying to get you to see something tonight that you can't see. The only way you can see it is if you get a revelation from the Father in heaven because your flesh and blood will all the time take you to the violence. It will take you to the works. It will take you to the what you must do rather than what has been done. But when you get a revelation, it will begin to release you from that whole thinking and you'll begin to see, maybe for the first time truly in your life, who the Christ really is and in seeing who the Christ really is, who the Father is also. So, kind of moving this thing to some kind of a conclusion. Uh, Chris, Chris told me this yesterday, that in, um, on Dragon's Den on TV, you know where the, the business guys, Peter Jones and those guys, gather and you come and you present your business idea, try and get finance from them. In, in response to a, a business presented on there, which automatically tracks energy prices and, and deals to ensure that you're on the best tariff. Barbara Meaden said this, anything that disrupts the energy business is good news. Because energy prices are too high. Anything that disrupts the religious business is good news. Because religious prices are too high. See, most people enter Christianity on the grace tariff. Don't have to do anything. God loves me. He gave himself for me. I'm freely accepted in him. And we come in on the grace tariff. But after the first year or so, we find ourselves moved on to the standard variable tariff without warning. And suddenly this is costing us more and requiring more and expecting more. And we find ourselves less able and more incapable to please this God who we joined because he said he loved us and by the free will of his grace, by unmerited favour, wanted to bring us in and tell us how valuable we were and we came in feeling a million dollars and valuable and now we don't feel so good because we're not holy and we're not sanctified and we're not doing it right and we're not being right and what will God think of this and what will God think of that and so we, we get moved onto the variable rate tariff without our knowledge. What we're trying to do here is to ensure that in the context of the gospel, you're on the best tariff. You're on the one that costs you the least because of what was provided for you by the one who gave the most. 
And I want you on that tariff of the love that comes in a way through Jesus that you realize that you have been given a righteousness by no merit of your own, that you did not earn, you do not earn, and you do not have to earn it to keep it, that imbibes within you and that out of that can flow the life of the Christ who came from God that removes you from the fear of that deity who was presented as destroying people because of his wrath and brings you into the love of the one who says, you're mine and I'll never leave you or forsake you. So let me finish here because my, my time's gone and then we'll just have one song. First of all, to some of your practical in-house pastoral word, many of you don't see that the freedom you've been exposed to here is the very reason you've been able to find fulfilment in things which are somewhere other than here. Bear that in mind and give due where it's due. I'm not looking for perfect people, but I want us to find perfect love because John wrote, perfect love drives out fear. But he's almost like he's shooting himself in the foot because if fear is the greater motivator than love, John's really saying, I'd rather have you less motivated than more true. Do you get that? If fear is a greater motivator than love, which it is, history proves that, then John's shooting himself in the foot by saying perfect love drives out fear because he's saying, I would rather have you introduced to the trueness of love than motivated by the falseness of fear. Christ came to free us from that system. That's what it was all about. When the curtain was torn as Jesus breathed his last on the cross, the curtain in the temple that separated you and I from it, the thing behind the curtain, which was supposed to be the awesome holy presence of God and the curtain of the temple when Jesus breathed his laugh wasn't torn from bottom to top by human effort. It was torn from top to bottom by a divine work of God. And what it showed was all that religious stuff is without merit and without value that you have run your life according to and the condemnations that come with everything that was in that old system is no longer there because the way has now been made through Christ into what was called the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, fully accepted, fully loved, fully able, and that we do not live to get into that, but we now live from being in there. So here's what John wrote in John 14, the second half of verse 16, and then I'll shut up, promise. God is love. A statement. This, this guy, when he wrote this, John, he's writing it in the 90s, not the 1990s, okay, the 0090s. He's now an old man, he's, he's somewhere around 95 years of age, he, he was a disciple of Jesus, he, he's the one who came to the revelation in John chapter 1 that is the equivalent of Genesis chapter 1 where he said in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, without him nothing was made that has been made, but the word became flesh and lived among us and in that visual acceptance we saw the glory of the Father full of grace and truth flowing in us, flowing to us and flowing through us. And now, 95 years of age, he's seen the beginnings of the church. He's seen all the shenanigans. 
is, is seeing the attempts immediately after the crucifixion to try and superimpose upon the freedom that Christ came to bring, all that law stuff, all that fear stuff, all that work stuff. And then he says, okay, here's my conclusion as an old man. I can summarize it in three words. God is love. If you catch that, you've caught all of it. If you put everything through that filter, you'll understand everything. If you measure your life according to this declaration, you'll be okay. Because not only will you realize that God is love, but that he loves you and you are loved, and now you can love you because God loves you. Because if God loves you, you must be worth something. God is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us. How? So love, living in love, and God living in love, which means God is living in us, so that we will have confidence in the day of judgment. Don't let that lead you into some different things by your vengeance, violent God thing, because in the world we are like him. And here's where I'm going to finish. There is no fear in love. The answer to the fears of our life is not faith. Dealing with the anxieties and fears is not the problem that you didn't have enough faith in God, in Jesus, in yourself, in whatever. But John says, listen, I've really thought this through and I've weighed it. That The antidote to fear is not more faith. The antidote to fear is accepted love. And when you come to the place of accepted love is when fear dissipates and finds its place of nothingness because there is no fear in love. So for some of you who are even afraid of what I said last week and afraid of some things I said tonight. Why are you afraid? Because there's no fear in love. We miss the love somewhere thinking that even if we just say this wrong or get the words wrong, we must be afraid because there's no love. But there is no fear in love and I live in love and there is no fear in love. So we can be honest, we can be ourselves, we can be vulnerable and we can receive the life and the light and the strength and the truth and the way. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Anytime we fear is because we believe we are going to be punished. Therefore, when you become a believer, a Christian, and you have fear, automatically that says then if I am afraid it's because I'm going to be punished and who is going to punish me? Well I now belong to God so it's God that's going to punish me. Do you, do you see where all this goes? And then our relationship with the divine and our ability to share who he is gets all screwed up and twisted up because we can't now psychologically deal with that whole thing because, because punishment is in the mix. But John says when love comes into the mix, punishment goes out the door. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now this is not about you having perfect love for God. I wish somebody could give me back all the years of torment that I went through that I didn't love God enough. I didn't love God well enough. That love didn't express itself 
in enough valid reasons for God that I was having to please God because I thought it was my love that had to be perfect. But then, dummy, I got the understanding it's his love that's perfect because he is love and therefore the perfect love it's talking about is not your perfect love for God, it's God's perfect love for you and if it's perfect, you can't get any better. Now what's amazing is that even in creation, in Genesis, God didn't even call the world that he created perfect. He called it good and very good. But perfect was saved to describe the way that he loves you. God loves you perfectly. Absolutely perfectly without lack and without flaw. You are sat here today under a perfect love for you. Whether your love is perfect, faulty, whatever, it'll probably never be most of those things. But if you would understand, you sit under a perfect love and if you let that perfect love envelop you, it will drive out fear because fear has to do with punishment and when you no longer feel you are going to be punished, you come to that place of peace. Now here's where I finish. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Now that might sound pretty obvious, but actually most of us haven't got a clue what that means because most of the time we don't love because we are loved. I, I spent years, Lord, I love you for all that you've done for me. There's the giveaway right there. God, I love you for what you did for me in Jesus on the cross. It's not invalid. It, it, it's true, but what it was saying that my love was based in what was done. So we've understood love in a, a do perspective rather than a done for perspective, a receive perspective. And where our love has to come from is we love simply because he loved us. Now, that's where I lose all leverage and that's where I lose sleep. And that's where I think, what's the point? Because we're human beings. I'm asking people to love because we were loved. It's a no-leverage relationship. Which is why when we bring freedom, it can hurt us because there's no leverage in, in freedom. But you see, I know a gospel of leverage. I know a gospel that says, you better please God. You better be right before God. You better love God in the right way. But once we come to this place, it's like God says, okay, I just want you to love me because I love you. That's a new discipline. And as I said to you earlier, I'm trying to get you to do something that I can't get you to do. Because you have to come to the revelation of you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this, but my Father, which is in heaven. Here's the one thing I can guarantee you. That if anything is at the door of your life, if anything's just pressing to come in, ringing the bell, lifting the letterbox, shouting stuff in, using the credit card to try and slip the latch, it's love. The whole essence of the being of the divine, just, just wanting to so, so invade and permeate the very essence of your existence in a way that is not resisted but is received so that once you've encountered that love, you simply love because 
you are loved. And all that religion stuff that says, here's the rules, here's what you do to be loved and to prove that you are loved and to get someone to love you goes out the window. And then in the peace of that, you can rest in what John says. My conclusion is that God is love and that perfect love has driven out all fear because now punishment is not what comes to mind, but blessing and joy and peace and life are what come to me. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life in all its fullness. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his son. Not God was so mad at the world that he killed his son. God so loved the world that he gave. We are in a wonderful place of opportunity to simply receive what has always been that is there inside and to recognise and realise it. And we'll talk a little bit more about it on Wednesday when we talk about going beyond Jesus and into the Christ. Some heavy stuff, some true stuff, but you are invited to live in love and to love because you are loved. I pray it will touch your heart, touch your life. I pray that revelation that Jesus talked about to Peter will break this thing into your spirit so that what you cannot understand by flesh and blood and receive by flesh and blood natural will come up in you because of the divine work of God that you've said, I give you permission, please let that revelation dawn on me in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash qchurchyork. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.